Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. I'm Sherry Hoyt, and I'm your host for today. I'm really excited to be speaking on the phone with Janice Wood Wetzel, author of Sorrows and Songs, One Lifetime, Many Lives, an amazing story of one woman's courage and tenacity to rise above the circumstances of her early life to become an inspiring leader and advocate for human rights. Before we start, let's learn a little bit more about Janice. Janice Wood Wetzel is a graduate of the Brown School of Social Work at Washington University in St. Louis and a former Dean and Professor Emerita of Social Work at Adelphi University in Garden City, New York. She has served as a United Nations representative in New York since 1988. Dr. Wetzel is a well-published international educator and researcher who has specialized in the human rights, mental health, and advancement of women from a global perspective for more than 40 years. A mother of three and grandmother of four, she is a member of Professional Women Photographers and lives on the Upper West Side of New York City. For more information on Janice Wood Wetzel and her book, visit her website at sorrowsandsongs.com. Hi, Janice. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hi, Sherry. Glad to be with you. To begin, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your book, Sorrows and Songs? Well, uh, Sorrows and Songs uh, has a subtitle, One Lifetime, Many Lives, and I think that both the title and the subtitle really tells you what the, song, what the songs and the sorrows are about. Uh, I wanted to have a balance of my life and of the life of my parents. Uh, so I start with my parents, and it, it's built around them during their lives, but it's, it's also designed to show their goodness as well as their tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was influenced to write it, I think, because they died tragically when they were in their 50s, mm. both of them. And as I wrote, I saw that I, I too, wanted to show that balance in my life. And I thought, we all have it, I think. So I think of my story while the actual stories are unique to me, perhaps. Um, it's also a universal story in terms of uh, women in their lives going through the 30s uh, through the the present day, or at least to my 80th year. Mm-hmm. I'm now 85, <laughs> so I, it goes to my 80th year. I thought that was enough, <laughs> and <laughs> certainly would have enough material for that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. So, what was it like? to bring up the experiences of your past, both, well, both your parents and your past, and putting it all down on paper? I, from the beginning, thought it, uh, that it must be candid. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, I pick and choose what I would share, but I've shared a, a lot of things uh, that would make me nervous <laughs> to reveal. <laughs> it was another one of my motivations, I think. I had moved so much that there wasn't anyone in my life that really knew all about me. Mm. And so um, it was a legacy in some ways. And so writing it was um, with a little bit of nervousness there, uh, a little bit afraid of what people might think, but I didn't let myself dwell there. I just thought I'm going to write this in my own voice and I'm going to write it as honestly as I can and um, edit out that which you know I think wouldn't be appropriate or wouldn't be my story, but somebody else's story uh, that I wouldn't have a right to tell. So there certainly was a lot of emotion in the telling of it. But to tell the truth, I had so much therapy in my life that I had I had revealed these things to mm. professionals from time to time. And so it, it didn't carry some of the 
burden that it might have if it had been, you know, a first-time thought. Right. It was just more getting it out, getting it down right. on it paper, wasn't, rather. It, it wasn't a matter of catharsis, in other words. Mm-hmm. You know, I already dealt with a lot of it. It was more of a quiet telling. Mm, nice. And now, how does it feel to have it out there for the world to see? Well, <laughs> I've kind of gotten over some of it. I, I have to laugh. I have, I have a friend that wrote a, a novel about the same time, and she said to me, you know, I'm afraid that nobody's going to read it. And I said, I'm afraid somebody will. <laughs> so, um. so, but I, I more or less, I'm not 100%, but more or less uh, gotten over that. Yeah. Um, and probably because I've had pretty nice feedback by uh, writing honestly. Yeah, I've read some of the testimonials on your website, and it looks mm-hmm. like um, you've gotten some pretty rave reviews. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I also wanted to mention for our listeners that Sorrows and Songs is the recent recipient of a couple of literary awards, receiving the Silver Medal and the Feathered Quill Book Awards for the 2017 memoir category and the Reader Views Award for the Reader's Favorite, uh, one of the sponsored uh, prizes from Feathered Quill Book Awards. What was your reaction when you heard about these awards? Well, I was very pleased but very surprised. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that uh, that I'd have a chance at such a thing and it, in some ways didn't even really know what they meant at the time, um, but I couldn't have been more pleased. Well, congratulations, Simon. Thanks so much. Wonderful. Yeah. I do appreciate it. <laughs> now, you mentioned the subtitle of your book, One Lifetime, Many Lives, and mm-hmm. I, I really love that. It, I think it adds a lot to the title of your book, uh, and it's certainly fitting uh, with the many mm-hmm. different hats that you've worn over your, your lifetime. Right. So I wanted to talk about some of the different aspects of your life. Okay. Talk about your career as a social work educator. What is social work, and how would you compare it with psychology, or other helping professions? Um, Social work is a very comprehensive profession. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are educated to do so many things, sometimes we don't even know who we are, (laughs) and certainly neither do other people. (laughs) But I would say we are the only profession that's committed to human rights and social justice as a required policy. That doesn't mean that other professions might not do it, but it's not written into their missions as uh, being part of what they must be committed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also committed to a multicultural understanding and to uh, what we call a person and environment perspective. We don't just look at uh, well-being and psychological functioning in and of itself. We always look at it within the context of social and economic conditions. Uh, because we do believe that social and economic conditions really are the cause of many uh, psychological problems. Mm-hmm. And so uh, ours is a biopsychosocial spiritual perspective. I don't know if, if we've always had the spiritual part, but we certainly have become very aware of the need for it with uh, a global understanding. Mm-hmm. because uh, different religions are very much part of people's lives. Right. Uh, not always, of course, but many. You must be aware of you know, how much they're influencing them and how important it, it, those ideas are to them and work with that. So we're, we're focusing 
you know, I think to call it social work uh, it was there for a reason, mm-hmm. uh, that we are really looking at the social aspects of a person's life. And how, has it changed much over the years? I think it it definitely has. Uh, social work has, fortunately or unfortunately, always been influenced by funding, government mm-hmm. funding. We do, uh, as a profession, people don't realize it, but we do the lion's share of all the therapy in the nation. And uh, part of the reason why there's so many of us and, and, uh, and we don't charge as much. And so... So uh, I'm just thinking practically that might be one of the reasons. But we also do a very good job uh, of it. And uh, as eras come and go, I mean, I can look back to the uh, 30s and 40s, for example. Uh, they were very socially organized. You know, when you look at the settlement houses that social workers had so much to do with, they were talking about they were dealing with refugees, immigrants, and the social aspects, the needs of these people as they came into our country. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the 50s, uh, they were very, very influenced by Freud. So there was a huge clinical influence that came in, so much so that I, as a returning student, I went back to school in midlife. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was in my 40s by the time I went to social work school. And the day we had orientation, students from the black community stood on the stage and were lobbying for more social content in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. This made a big difference. It started to change again who we were and change back or at least not leave the Freudian view altogether, but to include more social content. We also, in, in social work, all all students uh, have to understand theories of human behavior and mental health, evidence-based practice, social policy, and research. So wherever the country is going and wherever we are trying to make a difference, uh, we are, our schools are, are leaning in that direction. Mm-hmm. It certainly makes us uh, stay aware of, of what the world is doing. Schools today, for example, are, are including more and more content on um, a global view because whether or not they're working in other countries, uh, other countries are working here. Right. <laughs> People are here. Right. So we change you know, as we go, but we always have that same core context as being important and human rights. You're also a great uh, advocate for human rights and especially yes. women's rights, serving as right. a representative at the United Nations. Yes, I've been there since 1988, and uh, as what they call an NGO representative, that's non-governmental organization representative, and uh, the iteration for mental health in the last mm-hmm. three years. And and what we do is represent our organizations on committees that influence uh, policies uh, from the official United Nations. Mm-hmm. And we and also keep them honest. <laughs> we check whether they're really doing what they're saying. You know, it's an ongoing thing. And for years I had students that I mentored, and that was very fulfilling to do that. Now, because I, by the time I did that, I, I believe I was retired 
from my regular work and um, had more time for that. Mm-hmm. So what can you tell us about uh, women and the United Nations? Well, the United Nations uh, in 1975 decided to pay attention to women. They started to recognize that there was a global concern for women. So they named 1975 the International Year of Women. And before the year was out, they realized that they weren't going to solve the problems of women in a year. So they made it a, so they, they made a decade of women that ran from 1975 to 1985. Okay. And they had major meetings of women that came from all over the world during that time. In 1975, they they met in uh, Mexico City. The mid-decade, they were in Copenhagen. And then at the end, they were in uh, Nairobi. And the participation went from 5,000 to 12,000 by Nairobi. Then 10 years later, there was a follow-up in Beijing, and that one, uh, 50,000 women came. Wow. So in the beginning, I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, these are largely men that, that were at the UN, of course. And I don't know what they were thinking in being so generous uh, with funding and, and with us. But I will say by Nairobi, they started, including the United States, started to be very threatened uh, mm-hmm. by the unity and diversity. What I could say there is that we were very different, women from all over the world, Mm-hmm. different attitudes, different beliefs. But certainly we were not, you know, of one perspective. But there was, as I say, unity in that diversity. They all agreed that women's issues were a very serious problem and that women were always uh, second-class citizens in every country. And so uh, they became more and more bonded and influenced by each other. And I think countries became very threatened. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, there was a lot of effort to have us lose the gains that we'd made. We'd made a great many gains, and we were spending all of our time just trying to hold steady mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than make more gains. And um, and so we decided in follow-up meetings not to have uh, these international meetings and mm-hmm. to stay in New York. But they did still come to us, and uh, and we would carry on that way and not have the UN fund us in quite the same way. So there we are, and that's where we are now, but we're making great strides with our policies. So that's the overview, I would say, of what they're doing, and they're doing a great deal. It's hard to imagine that all of this began as late as 1975. That just sounds incredible Mm -hmm. to me. Well, in all honesty, uh, from the inception, women were included in, for example, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that Eleanor Roosevelt honchoed at the UN. And it was mentioned, but as she said, the language continued to not be gender neutral. Everything is male. Mm -hmm. He is, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And yeah. uh, and men, and when they mean everybody. She said at the time that she thought she'd pushed the envelope enough and that, you know, the other changes had to come later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, she had gotten women in there anyway, and girls. Yeah. Yeah, it was 1975 before all this hit.
Inside Scoop Live is a global internet-based broadcast specialized in interviewing published authors about their current books and their areas of expertise. Join us and hear both well-known and upcoming writers talking candidly about their life experience as well as the business of being an author in today's literary world. Always interesting and current, we strive to bring our audience high-quality discussions that spotlight a vast diversity of authors in the field today. Our interviews are available 24-7 through direct podcasts as well as MP3 download from your computer for your convenience. Please visit us at InsideScoopLive.com. Welcome back to Inside Scoop Live. Today I'm talking with Janice Wood Wetzel, author of Sorrows and Songs, One Lifetime, Many Lives. Now, talk more about women and mental health. What is your perspective on women and mental health? Well, women and mental health kind of is uh, dear to my heart mm-hmm. uh, in that uh, that has been a specialization of mine for years. And, you know, as often true, uh, comes out of personal experience. Mm-hmm. Depression has long, I mean, for centuries, been a major problem. And you can go back to the 1600s and find a series of books where they noted that women were at risk, and they chalked it up to social conditions. Mm-hmm. So they were way ahead of their time. Uh, but now uh, the World Health Organization forecasts that by 2020, Depression will be the developing world's number two health burden, second only to heart disease. Mm. Now, that's really something to say. It's already number one in the developed world. So that means in the developed world, which, of course, includes the United States, depression is more of a burden than any other heart, uh, non-communicable disease of any kind, as well as AIDS, as well as communicable diseases. So leading the pack, and of course the end result of depression can be suicide. Mm-hmm. So why, you know, why is that? Why and why are women at, at risk? Well, women are at risk for suicide, but interestingly, the most at risk are men mm. when it comes to suicide. And we don't know these things. I'm going to just give you the general mm-hmm. uh, conjecture. I think that men are socialized not to go for help, mm-hmm. you know, to be tough, and they're socialized to not need, on the other hand, they're taken care of all the time. Mm-hmm. They don't find themselves, you know, having to do for themselves. And when they're in that kind of situation, they become uh, very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. The, the most at risk are white men over 85. Wow. The second most risk are white men over 65. Mm-hmm. So the older they get, the more at risk they are. Yeah. And with women, it's just the opposite. Really? Yeah. Women get stronger. I have my own. You want to hear my own theory? I do. <laughs> <laughs> this is this has no science behind it <laughs> whatsoever. But my own theory is that we're all socialized to do and believe and be what society says we should be, whether it's good for us or not. And so women and people of color and gays and lesbians, all all vulnerable groups, you know, are, are doing and believing about themselves, whatever society says. So Women spend their lives, and this this is documented uh, all over the world, thinking that they're 
second rate Mm -hmm. and in many cases worthless because they're born women. Mm -hmm. So men are taught just the opposite, that they're special, that they are, you know, they're the ones that should have the education. They're the ones that should be the bosses, the heads of families, uh, earn the money and so on. And as we get older, as women get older, we start finding out those things aren't true about ourselves, that we're not worthless, that we're not, uh, you know, without meaning, that we have much to share. And in fact, uh, nowadays, even governments are realizing that it, if you don't advance women, your country doesn't advance. Yeah. But men, as they get older, they start finding out that what they had been told wasn't true either. Mm. You know, that they're just regular people. Yeah. <laughs> that they're not all that special. But they're, <laughs> you know, but they're just regular people. But it's harder for them to fall off the pedestal. Well, right. As women, I think we gain more confidence as we grow older. And yeah. it sounds like just the opposite for men. I mean, right. They make a big show of it. I mean, if anybody has worked with men, uh, which I have, mm-hmm. uh, they often come across in meetings and so on, you know, assure themselves, know what they're saying is, you know, absolutely true and more likely to listen to one another and to speak up. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you really get to know about it all, they don't know any more than we do. They're just more confident in saying something. Right. You know, so... Or they might take our ideas and call them theirs. So, <laughs> so it's all a matter of socialization. It's not because we're good people or bad people. Yeah. But, you know, we just learn these things. So it it doesn't help men any more than it helps women to stick them in cubby holes and tell them they ought to be certain people. As we try to find more of that gender role balance, these problems are not as exacerbated. Now, there's always the matter of genetic inheritance, you know, biochemical kinds of influences on mental health. Mm-hmm. But there's still no doubt that the environment, uh, social economics has a lot to do with it. It's a major factor, yeah. Yeah. I do want to say that while women who live in poverty, and that is the feminization of poverty we've heard about since the 70s. Mm-hmm. They do two-thirds of the world's work, and yet two-thirds of all women live in poverty Mm. the world over. And so uh, it's because they're concentrated at the bottom of the pay scale. They're either unpaid, low-paid, or their work isn't even counted as work, the work in their home. Right, right. And or the community, all the things that keep the community going. And if they're a, a member of a minority, they really are at the bottom of the financial pyramids. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that women of means don't get depressed. Mm. The higher up the echelon is in class, the more likely they are to live in a, a traditional family and be expected to do certain things that are fitting for women. Right. Now you see exceptions to this, you know, in high power women who you know, who have the families, their dual jobs and all of that. But that's not the norm. Mm-hmm. These women are living like they're in the nineteen fifties when it comes to their roles in society. So it isn't just women who live in poverty or women who have less money. You can have a lot of money and still be at risk. Absolutely. Now I understand you are a serious photographer. What do you take into account when you photograph? That's a good question. 
I love photography. As I've said many times, I would starve to death if I had to support myself with it. <laughs> I'm in dozens of shows. And so, you know, I'm in an avocational level, I'm very successful. But certainly, I don't sell that much. I've written about this in my memoir, saying that, uh, that it isn't all about money, although that would be nice. There are other qualities about it that I, I've made a lot of friends through this and, you know, at a, at a more advanced age, which is where they always say it's harder to. And I'm a single woman, and, and that's supposed to be harder. I can tell you it is not. Okay. <laughs> in, in New York, it is not. Right. Uh, there are all kinds of things you can do if you're involved in it. You know, you have to be involved. You can't just be an onlooker. Right. You've uh, got to step out. Yeah. But what influences me most, I have to say, is my social work route. Now, mm -hmm. or you could look at it another way. We self-select into social work or self-select into other things. So maybe that's who I was already. Yeah. Uh, but I'm always looking uh, for the dignity of people, uh, their authenticity. I try to connect with them. If I don't know the language, it's, it's through gesture and uh, affect and uh, attitude, you know, generally. And I, I have a, a very good track record on, on getting uh, people to show who they are, whether who they are at that moment is skeptical or questionable, maybe a little angry or just very happy with it. Um, looking very dignified, perhaps, no matter what they're doing. I try to capture all that, you know, that authentic part of them, of who they are in a positive light to find the thing about them that can shine through. Yeah, I had the opportunity to check out your website and uh -huh. want to plug that. It's JaniceWoodWetzel.com. And fabulous work. You do a variety of subjects. Would you say that capturing the human essence is your favorite? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's important to me. And that kind of, I like street photography for that. You know, I don't do uh, formal portrait photography in a studio, but I do portraits on the street or wherever they are. Right. And, uh, and try to capture that uh, essence of them. Now, I want to circle back to your writing to wrap things up. Do you have plans for another book? I'm writing a book for what I'm, I guess would be called The Masses, a book about women and well-being from a global perspective. Mm. Many years ago, I developed a model that was what we call a psychosocial model. It has a lot of the social indicators used in this model so that a person would not have to have the stigma of a psychological label because stigma is such a huge problem. Oh, yeah. We have to work at changing that, right. but that's a slow thing. And so I wanted something that they could do for themselves, a train-the-trainers model, mm -hmm. and that would not uh, focus on anything that was psychiatric. And when do you expect to have it finished? I'm not giving myself a deadline, but okay. I'm, I'm working at it regularly. It's a working title of In Pursuit of Women's Well-Being, a Global Train the Trainer's Guide or something like that. Okay, great. As a final question, I wanted to find out what advice can you give to aspiring authors and particularly those that want to share the stories of their lives and write their memoirs? I would say to have a purpose in what you're writing 
to choose. If it's a memoir, you're not writing a biography, mm-hmm. so you're picking and choosing, but it still needs to have some kind of an arc. You need to have, you know, an arc like you would have for uh, for fiction. Right. You know, someplace where the challenges are and where you're going with it. You know, in my particular case, there were a lot of challenges. I made a lot of problems for myself as well, and uh, but I was trying. But doing so, I stumbled along the way. Mm-hmm. So unless you're going to write a candid memoir, I don't think you should bother. Mm. <laughs> I think that'll come through if it's not candid. Right. If you're just writing facts, that's a different thing, and, and okay, so just write them. But you're going to find that it's empty, that it's not telling anybody anything. Right. I also try to write it within the context of the eras that I went through. So they might keep the world they live in, you know, in their minds mm-hmm. to write it within that context, which is what I did. Now, that's not necessary either, but uh, it helps to make people that don't have your exact story still live through the same times right. or, or might want to know about those times if they didn't. And so they're still getting something out of it. Yeah. I certainly didn't write everything down about everything. The other thing that I learned, and I don't know why, um, my first draft of this book was chronological. Mm -hmm. And when I had professionals look it over, I had three professionals look it over. One young man who taught a class in memoirs, and true to my form, I took it after I wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) It was a one-day intensive here in New York, and... And then uh, two elderly people who were retired editors who agreed to do it. Uh-huh. They all said the same thing. And so I chronological, and you have too much about your children in it. Oh. <laughs> and, so, and so they said, this is about you, not your children. I said, but my children are about me. Well, yeah. I had to edit that out. Now, if you were writing for a different reason, if you're writing for your family, for example, just your family, that's what you want to do. Right. You know, this is just for the family. But I didn't erase those things. I saved them in a folder. I still have them. Yeah, it could be another book one day. It could be another book or it could just be for (laughs) them, you know, that have their stories. Anyway, so you have to decide what you want to do and who you're writing for. Mm, Great advice. Janice, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an honor and a great pleasure. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to this interview. To our listeners, thank you for joining us today at Inside Scoop Live for my interview with Janice Wood Wetzel, author of Sorrows and Songs, One Lifetime, Many Lives. Once again, you can find out more information about Janice and her book at sorrowsandsongs.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com.